We are studying uh, Hebrews chapter 11, that great history of faith, that uh, illustrative portion of Scripture where we learn many lessons about faith in action, about walking by faith, and uh, we turn back again there this evening to Hebrews 11, verse 8. As you've already heard, speaking of Abraham, the father of many nations, our father by faith. We read from Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where he would receive it as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, you have given us your word as a light to shine upon our path. So grant, we pray, that as we meditate upon this part of your word, that we might have insight into that walk of faith and find the light shining more and more until that perfect day through Christ our Lord even as you made that promise to Abraham to bless him and to bless the world in his seed, so may our Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, bless us today. The Holy Ghost, enlighten us in our walk in him. May you continue to build up your church in faith against which the very gates of hell would be powerless to prevail. And may all the nations know that we are truly the seed of Abraham, your people, the sheep of your pasture, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, George Mueller of Bristol, after being a very wild youth, was converted in his mid-twenties. He set out to live a life of faith like very, very few people have ever done. He and his wife sold all their earthly possessions in order to found an orphanage 
and decided to live completely by faith alone, making their needs known only to God in prayer. They faced many insurmountable problems, which were all overcome by the power of God. Mueller, frankly, was just an often an eccentric uh, man. Um, he had faith in God's power to do things which God himself had never promised to do. But God honored that man's remarkable faith in the most striking and unusual ways. Not faith in any particular thing, but in, in God's power. He believed in God's power to accomplish his remarkable will every day, and God answered it in the most remarkable ways as well. For example, in 1877, George Mueller was on board a ship that was stalled off the coast of Newfoundland in dense fog. The captain had been on the bridge for 24 hours when Mueller came to see him. And Mueller told the captain that he had to be in Quebec by Saturday afternoon. <laughs> the captain replied, it is impossible. Very well, said Mueller. If your ship cannot take me, then God will find some other way. I have never broken an engagement for 52 years. But let's go down to the chart room and pray. The captain, wondering what lunatic asylum Mueller had escaped from, nevertheless agreed. Mr. Mueller, he said, do you know how dense the fog is? No, said Mueller. My eye is not on the density of the fog but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. Mueller kneeled down and prayed simply. And when he had finished, the captain was about to pray, but Mueller put his hand on the captain's shoulder and told him not to. First, he says, you don't believe that he will. And second, I believe that he has, and there is no need whatsoever for you to pray about it. The captain looked at Mueller in astonishment. Captain, Mueller continued, I have known my Lord for 52 years, and there has never been a single day that I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door, and you will find that the fog is gone. The captain walked across to the door and opened it, and the fog had lifted. Uh, it is one of the countless, just incredible moments of Mueller's life where his supreme confidence in God was rewarded. God acted immediately and dramatically. And we think, oh Lord, couldn't you do that for us just, just once or twice? Uh, I wish we could have stories like that more, right? Um, I, I mentioned this by way of contrast as we begin. It's good for us to remember when we come to a passage like this that George Mueller lived a very unordinary life. He hardly lived the ordinary normal life of faith. Abraham lived something much, much closer to the normal life of faith. Oh, God worked wonderfully in his life, too, don't get me wrong. But, you know, Abraham was called out of an idolatrous family at 75 years old to go to a land he didn't know where. God, God brought him there. He, he heard nothing from God for, for years. He had many, many, many days where God did not act immediately or dramatically where Abraham um, wasn't sure that God was going to come through for him and had to learn to trust the hard way. Abraham has much more to teach us about the practical life of faith than even George Mueller, the great man of faith. Mueller's many remarkable stories, of course, can encourage us in the power of God, 
But Abraham is truly the father of all who believe, as he is extolled. Paul uses Abraham as his prime example of one who was justified by faith alone, apart from works. He points out that it is not physical birth that makes us Abraham's descendants, and that uh, Abraham had two sons after all, but uh, true Jews are Jews only by the faith of Abraham, those who believe. And he says, therefore, uh, it is those who are of faith. And if you belong to Christ, then, he writes to Gentiles, you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. So it's not a great surprise that if we want to learn something about faith, Hebrews 11 spends more verses on Abraham than any other person. No surprise, I say. I'd like to give you a couple of the lessons, many of the lessons that I could draw, but uh, I'll pick out four lessons from four verses from this passage. Faith obeys God's call. Faith directs a pilgrim life. Faith rests on God's promises. And faith lays all on God's altar. Let's uh, turn to this passage again and uh, consider what Abraham has to teach us about walking by faith. First, faith obeys God's call. Faith obeys God's call. You get that in verse 8, of course. By faith, Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go out to the place where he would receive, which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. Abraham was uprooted from family and friends, uh, never apparently to see them again. If he had a house in Ur of Haran, it was his last. He lived the rest of his life in tents, moving from place to place. The only piece of Canaan he actually ever owned was a small burial plot where he had to pay full price to have something to bury his wife. Other than that, he saw the promises from afar. Now, before God called Abraham, he lived in Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern-day Iraq. He was a pagan living in a pagan city and descended from a line of idolaters. How do I know that? Joshua 24, verse 2 reads, Your fathers, including Terah, father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river, Euphrates, in old times, and they served other gods, end quote. My point is that Abraham was not an amazingly holy man before God called him. He was not a man of faith at the beginning. God's call did not immediately make him a super faithful man. He made many bad choices. He had his own share of stumbles aplenty in his journey. In Genesis 12, we read how God called, at the time, Abram to leave his country, his relatives, his father's house, and to go to the land that God would show him. And he went, and uh, it was all of God's mercy. Um, by faith, though, Abraham obeyed. We are saved by faith alone, but Abraham tells us right from the beginning that faith is never alone. By its very nature, faith in God results in obedience to God. We can distinguish these things, but we can't divide them. Jesus told the Jews who claimed Abraham as their father that were seeking to kill him, look, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham. So Paul describes something called the obedience of faith. Uh, faith that receives God, 
um, as uh, the Lord obeys God's word, even when it's very inconvenient and difficult, as it's got to be difficult to leave your family on the call of God and go somewhere you don't even know where you're going. Sometimes, as in Abraham's case, a person finds that he must break with family, painful as it is. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. Not calling us to disrespect our family, of course, but Jesus meant that if even if our closest loved ones will stand between us and him, the choice is clear. We must obey his call. That was Abraham's experience right at the very beginning. It was a very large step of faith, but Ab faith obeys God's call. And this is God's word to you. Perhaps you have even delayed to put your faith in God and follow Christ. Or perhaps you've only gone halfway like Abraham did as he only made it part of the way the first time. You think perhaps there will be time later and things will be so much easier. But the course of life and the habits that you establish are not so easily changed. The Bible warns you by saying to you today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. God can break an old hard heart, of course. God can bring people to repentance after many years of obstinacy, but it rarely happens. I uh, tell you that faith obeys God's call. Second, uh, faith directs a pilgrim life. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Interestingly, this is the only verse in the Bible, if I'm not mistaken, that refers to Canaan as the promised land. We talk about that a lot, and that's the verse that it's from. Now, the irony, of course, is that Abraham, who was the heir to the promised land, barely owned a foot of ground in it, except for the cave of Machpelah, which he had to buy at full cost to bury his wife. He didn't own anything. He lived in a Winnebago. Uh, Kent Hughes pictured it as if God had promised you and your descendants the land of Guatemala, and in obedience you traveled there only to spend the rest of your life in a camper. Not only you, but your sons and your sons' families lived in campers, moving around from place to place, in the country that God had supposedly given you. Abraham lived as a sojourner in a foreign land, dwelling in tents. Um, in contrast, by the way, to his nephew Lot, who did move to Sodom and settle down in a house. Although Lot was a believer, he was tainted by the godless values of Sodom. He was not the pilgrim that his uncle Abraham was. Well, we might have expected this passage to say that Abraham believed that that land of Canaan would one day be his and lived there in tents. But it goes on to say immediately that Abraham never thought that Canaan was what God had ultimately promised him. He waited for the city which had foundations, whose builder and maker as God. And he and the other patriarchs confessed that they were pilgrims and strangers on the earth. This uh, is a reference to, you remember how Abraham was in Canaan and he was talking to the sons of Heth as trying to negotiate this burial plot for Sarah. And uh, he confessed living there, I, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. And even Jacob, near the end of his life, met Pharaoh and twice 
referred to his life as a pilgrimage. Well, we read in Hebrews that those who say such things plainly declare that they are seeking a homeland, and truly, if they were called, if they'd called to mind the country from which they had come, they'd have opportunity to return. But they desire a better that is a heavenly country, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is, I say, not what we might have expected, but godly Abraham realized that this promise of a land uh, was only a earthly token of a greater promise. And even though he was a pilgrim all of his life, he looked to the fulfillment of that greater promise. And I remind you that this means a lot to these early readers, where the first readers of this letter had been tempted under threat of persecution to go back. And you see the implication of the text. You know, if Abraham had called to mind the country from which he had come, he would have had opportunity to return. But he desired a better country and pressed on. The implication is, to go back to Judaism would be like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob going back to Mesopotamia. No, no, no. They understood God had promised them a new and a better country, which they could see from afar. Being men of faith, they looked beyond Canaan, where they lived as strangers anyway, to the heavenly country that God had prepared. And this is where their story and our story come together. This is very important, and this is repeated again and again, actually, in this chapter. You notice it is not said that, all, that they and all the Old Testament saints believed for worldly things, like some real estate in Canaan, where Christians believe in spiritual things like heaven. Oh, no. He says, rather, they were looking for the very same thing that you and I are looking for, and that's why we need to press on, too. We must endure in faith just as they did. For this is the only way that we will receive the promise. Canaan was no more the true homeland of those believers than it was the true rest for Israel in chapter 4. Even after she had moved into the promised land, the rest still remained, and they knew it. And David spoke of it. And so here, God had promised that land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants, which he gave them the land. But that land was not the full realization of the promise as they knew. Just a picture just a token, a down payment of that eternal city which God had prepared. And therefore Abraham viewed himself as a stranger and sojourner on the earth and fixed his mind on the eternal celestial city where your mind should be fixed and mine. That was the mindset of faith, a pilgrim journey. Um, by the way, I, I should mention that you might hear some people based on verse 40 saying that the old believers didn't receive what had been promised, but that we have received it. They greeted it from afar, but we've obtained it. But if you read any good commentary, you'll point out that that rest of it is not, is not there. That, that the author isn't distinguishing between the believers in the ancient days and, and us, but identifying the situation that uh, we, chapter 13, 14, do not have here an enduring city. But we are looking for that city which is to come. They didn't receive it. We haven't received it. We both look toward that city. And therefore, remembering Abraham's pilgrimage, we find ourselves in precisely the same situation. And 
Though we have a little of what God promised now, we must continue to persevere in faith, for it says that none of them received what had been promised. And they are only going to be made complete as we are made complete in the fulfillment of all things. Chapter 10, verse 36. We must persevere that we might receive what has been promised. We haven't received it either. And so we must hold fast to Christ. Nobody receives until the end. And the one who perseveres in the course of the life will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's the meaning of the passage. Faith is the key. Faith sees that future which has been promised. And in various ways, we also must look to the Lord to fulfill our needs in this world. We declare, nevertheless, our citizenship is in heaven. The Bible speaks of our lives as a pilgrimage, a journey to another place, as we're learning in Sunday school in the Pilgrim's Progress, of all the ups and downs and the dangers and crises and crosses that we too must, like Abraham, summon up faith and apply it to courage and determination. And above all, there is this high and great purposes and promises of God to be fulfilled in the world and the blessing of all nations and the celestial city our homeland calls to us a better country by far and that the the christian therefore presses on in faith to an eternal dwelling that is the application to us believers as we must as those jewish believers did sometimes break from our home in this world and live a pilgrim life uh which which uh we are of the in the world but not of it so So this also is a challenge, as faith directs a pilgrim's life, but you know how hard it is to have this mindset, how easy it is to settle in, as the people of this world do, day by day, to make much less of our lives than what we read here. We don't consider ourselves pilgrims. We forget the sweet by and by, and we find the sweet here and now to be very satisfying. And so we often meander through the world, oblivious to the fact that a journey that is set before us is beset with dangers and difficulties and high purposes, and the world that is to be blessed in the seed of Abraham. We don't think of our lives as perilous journeys, which the Bible reminds us that they are, and gives us warnings and instructions. Paul writes to the Corinthians a very uh, wonderful but sober chapter about what it means to live as pilgrims. Those who buy something, he said, should live as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as not engrossed in them, for the world in its present form is passing away. Those who are married as if they were not. Um, it's, It's a great challenge to remember the rather extreme mindset that the Lord forced Abraham to have, promising him an inheritance, giving him barely a square inch of his own, and setting his sights on a great, great promise yet to be fulfilled, a city whose builder and maker is God. That is what faith calls us to do as well. Faith, faith directs a pilgrim life. Third, faith rests on God's promises. It rests on God's promises. By faith, we read, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed and bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Abraham and Sarah were unable to conceive children when they were younger, 
And God had not only promised them a son, but God had promised nations of descendants. To underscore that promise, God even changed the name of Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude, and said, I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful and make nations of you. Kings shall come forth from you, as we read earlier. Your seed shall be as the sand of the seashore. Now, Abraham and Sarah couldn't conceive children earlier, and now they were well past the age of childbearing. And so, in Genesis 18, uh, the Lord uh, again reiterates this good promise to them, and uh, Sarah laughs, and the Lord rebukes her unbelief with this rhetorical question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And he goes on and restates the promise, at this very time next year, you're going to have a son. And she and Abraham rested on this unlikely promise of God, and sure enough, God fulfilled it. Pilgrims, point two, have to live by promises, point three. We we know that we are living as faithful Christians if we also find that promises are, are more precious to us than even our present possessions. That's what I was getting at earlier as, as Paul writes, that if you're living as a Christian as you should, he tells the Corinthians, you sit looser than others about the griefs and the frustrations of this world because we've received such great precious promises. Um, even the dearest things, those who have wives, he says, should live as if they had none. Those who rejoice, as if they did not. Those who buy something as if it weren't theirs to keep, it isn't by marriage or children or the accumulation of goods that you live anything worthy of this life, now or in the future. You have received exceedingly great and precious promises. You are called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You are called to be people not of this world, though in it. Your everlasting salvation, your very soon interest, entrance into a world of joy, a world that can give you a reward and glory that causes everything, even the sufferings of this life, to pale in comparison. None of this depends on whatever circumstance you are in now, Paul is saying, whether you're married, whether you're married to a believer, what kind of work you're doing, any such thing. Very, very soon, every single one of you will find God's promises wonderfully fulfilled. And you will leave the circumstances of your lives here, short as they have been, and faith will become sight. And all those treasures that are left, that have been laid up in heaven, all those promises of uh, glory and reward and taking, uh, taking the place in the kingdom of God, to, to live now in the light of such realities is what it means to live as pilgrims by promises. Those pilgrims of old, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they, they, they lived in tents. Uh, a country was promised to them. They, they got a little postage stamp. Um, the, the glory of what was awaiting them far exceeded anything that they experienced here. Now, can you honestly tell the Lord that his promises to you are the most important things, that your heart is firmly fixed in heaven for faith rests on God's promises. There is an anticipation in the pilgrim's life and 
Abraham knew it. He longed for that city whose builder and maker is God, a city with foundations. And in the meantime, he rested on the promise. Well, that also caused Abraham's greatest test of faith in this life, which is our fourth point. Faith lays all on God's altar. Faith lays all on God's altar. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Abraham, as I said earlier, was not the titan of faith that he later became. When God first called him to leave his family and his country, he partially obeyed. He went as far as Haran, and his father went with him. Only after his father's death did Abram uh, fully obey, uh, called a second time, apparently. When he got to Canaan, there was a famine. Without seeking God, apparently, Abram went down to Egypt, where he passed off Sarah as his sister. Years later, when God delayed fulfilling the promise of a son, Abram took Hagar, and uh, resulting in the birth of Ishmael, later again failing a test, lying about Sarah as his sister in Genesis 20. Okay, so my point is, it wasn't as if Abraham started out strong in faith and never faltered. He had plenty of ups and downs, as you do, as I do. It was through many times that his faith was tested. He saw the power of God. He saw some victories and also some failures, but he grew and he pressed on until the time came when, by faith, Abraham had to offer up Isaac. And, and there we read that Abraham obeyed God promptly, without argument. He got up early, and although God's command apparently contradicted his promise, and he must have wrestled with the horrible command, the Bible describes none of that struggle. It simply says that God commanded him to offer his son, whom he loved, his only begotten son. And he arose early the next morning and proceeded on a three-day journey to obey. And so faith says with Abraham, even though my current situation is just inexplic inexplicable, it, it seems to be completely contrary to God's love and goodness based on his covenant promise to me. I trust that he knows what he's doing and that he can work it all together for good. Even in Abraham's case, reasoning that, well, God is able to raise the dead, surely. God is going to be faithful to his promise no matter what. God had promised that in Isaac, his seed would be numbered. God's word commands you and I to do difficult things, to stay in a difficult marriage, to love a difficult person, to forgive someone who has greatly wronged you. I could go on. There are many difficult commands in the Bible. We, we find ourselves struggling and stumbling and often enough failing to obey them. But we are learning. We are going on. God is not done with us. And Abraham is an example that does say to us, you know, faith in God grows over time, and faith will lay all on God's altar. Faith lays all on God's altar. Back in the 18th century, John Wesley began 
what's now called the Watch Night Service, a service held on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, a, ser a service in which <clears throat> a congregation commits themselves again to the Lord. In Methodism, it's uh, an important annual observance in many congregations. They say a vow that they will follow the Lord with all their hearts, no matter what. Wesley wrote the prayer for them. They join hands the first of the year and pray together. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee and laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and thy disposal. And now, O glorious, blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. <coughs> and the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Faith lays all on God's altar. <coughs> I simply say in conclusion that Jonathan Edwards has a wonderful sermon on pilgrimage called The Christian Pilgrim where he says this. This is a quote that if you've never heard, you're going to have to print it out and put it up on your desk and think about it as it's one of these things that's going to be able to give you encouragement throughout life. He writes, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the fountain. These are but drops. God is the ocean. And therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, as it becomes to us, as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives, to which we should subordinate all the other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is true happiness? We need to become better pilgrims, living by promises, laying all on the altar. We've been called, and therefore, if we are going to go, not even knowing where we are going, we need God to open our eyes to the beauty of that yet unseen country, that better country, where the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. We must be able to say, where else would we rather be? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Samuel Rutherford once says, said that uh, his heart was in heaven, but Christ had run away there with it. That it is to be a pilgrim. Let us pray. Your love, O God, endures forever and never fails. Though there are many ways in which we have failed, yet we have not exceeded the supply of your mercy and grace. Grant us a strong faith, a strong faith that abounds in pilgrimage, in good works, a faith that opens hearts to you, a faith that opens our hearts to others. We pray that you would bless us according to your promise to our father Abraham. May God the Father bless us. May Christ take care of us. May the Holy Spirit enlighten us all the days of this pilgrimage.